Onassis Foundation presents Apply Dagger, Heidegger's Thinking in Being and Time Explained, a podcast series with professor and philosopher Simon Creechley. Hello there. Episode 8 of Apply Digger. Um, and today's topic is anxiety and care. And um, we're going to pull things together in this episode, elements that we've laid out in previous episodes, and they're all going to come together in a beautiful harmony in this episode. You will love it. It will all make sense. So let's get stuck in. Dasein is being in the world, as I've said repeatedly in these uh, talks. Dasein is being in the world, and being in the world is primordially and constantly a whole. We must not split the phenomenon. This phrase that Heidegger uses in chapter five keeps coming back. We must not split the phenomenon. We must keep things together. Dasein is being in the world as a whole. Now, the question in chapter six, this key chapter on care, is the question is twofold. The first part of the question is, how is the whole of being in the world to be disclosed? How is the whole of being in the world to be disclosed? And secondly, how is it to be defined? So how is the whole of being in the world to be disclosed? And secondly, how is it to be defined? The first question is going to be answered through anxiety, angst, which we'll discuss a bit later on. And anxiety is what Heidegger calls paradoxically, and he knows it's a paradox or a contradiction, an understanding state of mind. An understanding state of mind. He uses this double kind of portmanteau formulation. On 226, he says, is there an understanding state of mind in which Dasein has been disclosed to itself in some distinctive way? And that uh, understanding state of mind is going to be anxiety. And then the question in um, paragraph uh, 41, anxiety is discussed in paragraph 40, in 41, that is then defined as care. And then in paragraph 42, which I think I'll say a, a word or two about, we get a weird, what he calls a pre-ontological confirmation of care in a myth. Heidegger tells us a story and brings things to a kind of happy ending. And also in chapter six, this is the last chapter in division one of Being in Time. So we're approaching a kind of climax. Uh, the question of being, this question which frames being in time, slips back into view. And um, he begins to say, well, you know, what I've done in this analytic of Dasein, of the human being, of us, is what he calls an existentially a priori anthropology. Right? Anthropology, uh, a way of talking about us, human beings, a priori, picking out the formal features of the human being, and the formal features insofar as the human being is defined by existence. The question then is, what does that um, have to do with the question of being as such? The second 
part of chapter 6, which we'll look at next week. There are two, two sections, which are both kind of mini-essays, short, independent essays, which conclude Division 1. One is on reality, and the other is on truth. In a way, they can be read independently of being in time, but we will connect them to the whole body of the argument. So that's the structure of chapter six. So what I wanna do now is to lay out the care structure. So the being of Dasein is care. What is the structure of care? Now, I wanna lay this out in 12 steps, a bit like Alcoholics Anonymous. And let's just make a start. Step one. The analysis of state of mind, this term Befindlichkeit, always having found oneself there, ness. The analysis of state of mind yielded a determination of thrownness. Thrownness is the fact or facticity of being there, being found somewhere and disclosed in a certain way in the there of our existence. Thrownness describes our way of being delivered over to our place of being found always already somewhere and disclosed in a specific way. And the way we're disclosed, as we saw, I think, two episodes ago, is we're disclosed through mood, through affect. So state of mind, thrownness, mood. That's point one. Point two, the analysis of understanding in um, paragraph 31 of Being in Time. An understanding was understood by Heidegger as being able to do something, therefore linked to possibility, potentiality. Understanding is linked by Heidegger to projection, throwing forth. So Dasein is not just thrown, but by having projects, it can throw forth from that thrownness and Dasein always remains in the throw. And we saw this last time, the way in which Dasein remains in the throw uh, and in the throes of idle talk, curiosity, and ambiguity. Step three. However, these two existentials, state of mind, understanding, are combined or better interwoven into the structure of Dasein's throne projection. Dasein is, as I've said a number of times before, throne projection. And the structure of throne throwing off is described as enigmatic. It's an enigmatic structure. And the point is to let us see the enigma as an enigma and not just to try and solve it. The third existential, is discourse or talk. And this was defined as the articulation of Dasein's enigmatic structure. Discourse, talk, is the way in which the whole structure of the human being, the ontological structure of our being in the world is made intelligible. The way in which we are in the world is made intelligible, is uh, interpretable through Discourse. Point four. So Dasein is articulated, articulated like a, a hinge, 
like a hinge. Think of Darzan as a kind of an articulated lorry, as we say in England, or a, a hinge of a door. We're articulated around this dual structure of thrownness and projection, which is rendered intelligible through discourse. Which is to say what exactly? The following is to say that Dasein is articulated throne projection. Articulated throne projection. And this proposition makes um, sense and combines these three existentials of state of mind, understanding, and discourse. And as Heidegger makes clear at the end of uh, paragraph 41, this basic structure of Dasein as articulated throne projection is not simple. It is articulated and therefore a mobile structure, a complex structure. He says, this is on 241, in the end it will be shown that the idea of being in general is just as far from being simple as is the being of Dasein. So uh, the basic existential structure of us is not simple, the basic structure of being is not simple. It is articulated. It is hinged around this mobile structure of articulated throne projection. That's step four. Step five, to take it a little bit further. So, care is the being of Dasein. But what is the meaning of care? What does it mean? Let's lay this out step by step. Firstly, care means that Dasein projects that its being is defined by possibility, by potentiality. Dasein is a being who has potential, potentiality for being. And insofar as it has this potentiality, Dasein always runs ahead of itself. Our being is being ahead of ourselves. And the term that Heidegger uses here is literally the term to, to run ahead, for laufen, to run ahead. Now to say this, that we are fun we're fundamentally beings who run ahead, is also to say, or to imply, that we are futural. We are orientated towards the future insofar as we understand. Also, and this is a claim that will become clearer as we move through uh, these episodes, this is also the meaning of freedom. Freedom is uh, futural. Freedom is the freedom of being able to disclose our existential structure. So Dasein is the being that's capable of the disclosure of its existential structure. This is also to say, by the by, that Dasein, us, we're the beings who are capable of what Heidegger calls phenomenology, namely bringing to uh, sight, letting us see that which shows itself. Remember the definition of logos uh, is letting see. The definition of phenomenon is that which shows itself. So insofar as we have this potentiality, we can disclose. We can let ourselves see what shows itself. Step six. But Dasein only projects on the basis of its thrownness. Dasein can only be ahead of itself insofar as it is already being in a world. And this is the meaning of the phrase that Heidegger uses in these pages, that Dasein is being ahead of itself 
already in a world. Namely, Dasein is thrown, as we've said, as we've said. Dasein is concealed. Dasein is therefore unfree in some measure. So Dasein is a being that's capable of phenomenology and of understanding itself, but that understanding is also capable of being caught up in facticity, caught up in concealment. I can, I am open to the future, but I can conceal that from myself. Step seven, what are we saying here? The being of Dasein is care. The care structure is the double movement of articulated throne projection, which is to say that Dasein is multifaceted. Multifaceted. It faces the future, projection. It faces the past, thrownness. And in relationship to the future and past, it turns to the present. Dasein is not a point. It does not occupy a point, a temporal punctum, a moment. Rather, Dasein is stretched temporally. Dasein is a temporal stretch. And the link between care and time, care and temporality, is one of the main concerns of division two of being and time that we'll get to. So, Dasein is this stretch, this stretch of our being in the world. This is care, and this is a unitary phenomenon. A unitary phenomenon which imposes unity on Dasein's multifaceted temporal structure. The fact that it's not a simple structure, it's an articulated complex structure. And this, Heidegger says in a, an interesting passage towards the end of the page is going to be looking at today. This is the sense of what he calls man's perfectio. Man's perfectio in the sense of completion or fulfillment. That the fulfillment of the human being is accomplished by care. And he says, this is page 243, in the double meaning of care, what we have in view is a single basic state in its essentially twofold structure of throne projection. So we're thrown, past, projection, future. Care is the single uh, concept which is meant to capture that twofold articulated structure, which is us. Step eight, Dasein is thrown projection. This is also to say that Dasein exists factically. Its projective capacity is caught up in thrownness. Dasein is always in the throes of its throw. But we've left something important out, and this is the point of uh, point eight. Chapter five discusses the three existentials, state of mind, understanding, discourse. But in part B of that chapter, he goes on to describe those, how those characteristics are uh, revealed, show up in everyday being in the world, in inauthentic life. And the three uh, concepts which mirror the three existential structures are idle talk, curiosity, and ambiguity, which I discussed last time. And those three make up the structure of falling. 
falling. And falling is the being of everydayness. Falling is groundless floating. The fact that we are beings who always fall to the world, fall from uh, ourselves, as it were, into inauthenticity, fall at the world. And that fall is not a fall from a state of grace to a state of sin. It's not a vertical fall. It's a horizontal fall, a falling at. And that falling at describes our absorption in the world, our fascination with the world. And I take that all very seriously, the claim that inauthentic life is what constitutes us. And now we can turn to point nine. Point nine is that we can reach a full, fulfilled, unified determination of Dasein's structure in terms of the three elements that we've identified. Existentiality, facticity, and falling. Existential uh, structure, projection, potentiality for being, freedom, as I said a little while ago. Facticity, meaning thrownness, unfreedom, and falling, our everyday way of being together with things of concern and with others for whom we feel uh, solicitude, Heidegger says. So those are the three elements of care, existentiality, facticity, and falling. And it's this unity of those three elements that Heidegger wants to unify in the concept of care. And if you have the time or the will or the uh, interest, you can see on pages 236 to 237 how this is all laid out in the text. I'm really just summarizing what Heidegger's saying here. On 236, he says, Dasein is an entity which is ahead of itself. We are ahead of ourselves. We're fundamentally uh, defined by being able, being potent, having potential, being free, headed towards the future. Secondly, we project upon, we project forth from our throneness. We're always already in a world. Existing is always factical. Heidegger goes further on these pages on 236 and says, existentiality is essentially determined by facticity. And then we're not just thrown projection, we're thrown projection insofar as we are always already absorbed in the world of our concern. Absorbed and alongside, out there, alongside, within that world, that inauthentic world that we inhabit. And these three elements constitute the structure of care. Point 10 is that care names the unity of Dasein's complex existential structure. It is an a priori claim. It's a formal claim. It's what precedes and structures experience, a term that Heidegger won't use. But is that the last word? Is care the last word in the determination of the being of Dasein? And the answer is no. There is something more fundamental still which we must uh, reveal, something still more primordial 
which provides an ontological support for the unity of care. This brings us to point 11. So there is a more primordial phenomenon which provides a support for the unity of the, um, the structure of care, the unity of this multifacetedness, uh, the fact that Dasein faces these three ways at once. And we can call this still more primordial phenomenon the meaning of care, where meaning is understood as that upon which care is based. And this upon which, which we've already seen, this is the claim that Heidegger makes about meaning. Meaning is that upon which our being in the world rests. That upon which is temporality. It's temporality that makes possible the being of Dasein as care. And this is um, laid out in Division 2, Being in Time, in a paragraph which is called Care and Selfhood. And to look a little bit down the, the road, it's, I think it's also useful. You know, we don't want you know, spoiler alert in a sense that I'd like to let you know where we're, where we're going in this discussion. But if you go oh, a couple of hundred pages further into Being in Time, you go to page 380, I'm just flicking through my copy of the book as I speak to you. On page 380, he makes the following remark. He says, time is primordial as the temporalizing of temporality. We haven't discussed any of that. Um, temporality, he says, is essentially ecstatical. We're gonna to get to that later on. You'll love that bit, ecstatic temporality. It's really good. Temporality temporalizes itself primordially out of the future. This is the important bit he then says, primordial time is finite. So the meaning of care is temporality, time. The meaning of time is finitude. The meaning of our being is finitude. And the meaning of being as such is going to be finite as well. And if we say that, looking way down the road, if we say the meaning of our being as such is finite, then we're saying that um, the being which structures different worlds and different historical periods is also finite and therefore is also different. Being is not eternal. It can structure different historical epochs, different discursive schemas. This is where someone like um, Michel Foucault, who was influenced by, uh, by Heidegger, um, he develops this point into the idea of the epistemes, the fact there are different historical epochs which um, shape history. That's looking way down the track, way ahead of ourselves, but it's good to get the big, keep the big picture in view. And this brings us to point 12. Now, what I've said so far in this episode is, um, is, uh, is true, believe me. Uh, I can show it on the basis of the text, but it's, and it might be nice, I don't know, it's for you to, to judge, but it's formal. It's a formal definition. It doesn't really have enough content. And this is where, point 12, we're gonna turn towards the concept of anxiety. Anxiety is going to provide some 
existential filling or fulfillment to this formal ontological set of claims. So let's talk about anxiety. Okay, on a painfully uh, embarrassing personal note, it was anxiety that first really spoke to me in Heidegger through uh, a text called What is Metaphysics, a lecture that Heidegger gave in 1929. And then I looked at being in time. I was around 22 at the time. I went to university uh, late and um, it was um, a stressful experience. And I had, I guess, what people call a breakdown in my first year. Um, it was horrible. And I was gripped with terrible anxiety, which was anxiety which was linked in particular to a terror, I guess, of failure, a terror more specifically of exams and failing in exams. The exam system in England at the time was pretty rigorous and punitive, and um, it induced a terror in me. And I kind of collapsed in my uh, first year at university. And when I was trying to kind of make sense of that, trying to kind of understand what was happening, I discovered Heidegger and Heidegger on anxiety. And it, it spoke to me in a very powerful way. And I want to try and keep that in mind, the, the kind of 22-year-old version of myself sitting in a 14th floor a room of a really ugly, anonymous tower block at the University of Essex in 1982, listening to Echo and the Bunnymen, listening more specifically to The Cutter by Echo and the Bunnymen, a track like that, conquering myself until I see another hurdle approaching, say we can, say we will, not just another drop in the ocean, and so on and so forth. There you are, you're young, you're anxious, you're, you find the world a weird place, and you're feeling strange. And Heidegger can speak to that condition. It's important to remember that, I think. Anxiety. Anxiety. And uh, in many ways, I came into philosophy because I felt anxious and I thought I could maybe help other people with anxiety um, through teaching philosophy. Was I stupid and naive in that thought? Well, I don't know. Sometimes I think so, sometimes I don't. But let's turn to anxiety. It's anxiety that lets us see being in the world as a whole. It is the basic mood or the fundamental mood. The term there in German is quite nice, Grundstimmung, the basic mood, that permits us to get a grip on the unitary structure of Dasein's articulated whole, which is care, as we've seen. So, at one level, uh, which is an important level in the argument of being in time, anxiety fulfills a methodological requirement. A methodological requirement is that Heidegger needs a way, method just means way, a way of revealing being in the world as a whole. And that's done through the concept of anxiety. He'll say something similar about death. Death is also a methodological requirement in being in time. The argument there is going to be, well, uh, in order to have a sense of Dasein uh, as a whole, then we, ha we have to have a sense of Dasein's end. 
Uh, we have to have Dasein's end in view, in our grasp, conceptually. Dasein's end is death, therefore we have to have a concept of death. So, anxiety and death fulfill methodological functions in the argument. But, but, and it's a big but, the uh, resonance of anxiety is more than methodological. It is the analysis of this, this mood, this basic mood of anxiety, this rare and subtle mood, as Heidegger will say, it is in this mood of anxiety that the self is first precipitated. Precipitated, I use the word deliberately, precipitated like a raindrop from a cloud. Right? This is the aquatic kind of maritime model of Heidegger that I, that I prefer. Yeah, so we're lost in the sea of them, lost in the sea of our absorption in the world. And the self precipitates um, in um, the experience of anxiety. Anxiety is the first formation of the, of the self, the, the free, authentic self. And this idea of anxiety as what first shapes the self was the mood that launched a thousand novels from uh, Sartre's Nausea, famously, where um, the protagonist in that book feels this nausea at existence through to a book like Camus' The Outsider, The Stranger, L'Etranger, which ends with this uh, beautiful line, I opened myself to the tender indifference of the world. I opened myself to the tender indifference of the world. That's kind of the experience of anxiety. Or indeed the anxiety that you can find in more recent novels. I think of my friend Tom McCarthy's novel, Remainder, which begins with the line, of the accident, I remember very little, almost nothing. And then the, the mood of the character in Tom McCarthy's Remainder is very much a kind of mood of anxiety, someone who holds existence at a distance. And you could say, um, maybe you could say that anxiety is the mood of the novel itself. Um, it's a very general kind of claim to make and it might sound abstract and absurd, if we, but if we think about the novel, when does the novel begin and where does the novel begin? It really begins in, um, in Britain in the early 18th century uh, with figures like uh, Daniel Defoe, late 17th, early 18th century, books like Journal of the Plague Year, and most famously Robinson Crusoe. Robinson Crusoe, I mean, if you read that book, I mean, Crusoe experiences profound, profound anxiety. Uh, he goes kind of crazy on the island in the strangest possible way. So. The rise of the novel, as Ian Watt used to say in that classic study of the novel, in many ways perhaps goes together with the idea of anxiety. That's just a thought. But it's in anxiety um, that freedom is first felt. The anxiety that defines a free individual, this is where it's felt. And the key thing here is that freedom, anxiety are things which are not uh, first and foremost conceptual or cognitive, they are affective, they are 
emotional. Anxiety arrests the movement of falling to the world, right? So, as I've said uh, a few minutes ago, we fall to the world, we fall at the world, and that is uh, our fundamental movement. Anxiety arrests that movement of falling and lets us grasp being in the world as a whole. And in anxiety, we are individuated as beings capable of grasping our being. The existential cost of this understanding, of this grasping of ourselves, is that we fall out of the world. We fall out of the world. We fall out of the cozy, homely, familiar world where we're concerned with things and have relations of solicitude with others. And we move into a world of uncanniness, a world uh, in which we're no longer at home, a world which is unheimlich, uncanny, unhomely. So inauthentic selfhood is had with others to the point where we are at sea with others in an experience of groundless floating, ambiguous, curious, chatty. And this is nice, right? This is uh, lovely. You know, it's like being at a party, you know, when you're at a party and you're, you know, you've, you've got over the initial anxiety of the party and you know, nobody likes me, I don't know anybody, everybody hates me, I want to leave, I want to die, whatever it might be. That kind of uh, Morrissey Smith's mood of going to a place and standing alone and leaving at home and then going home and crying and wanting to die, all of that. You get past that and there you are in a party, maybe you've had a couple of drinks and you're kind of in the party being a little bit drunk, a little bit maybe high and you are caught in amb ambiguity, curiosity, chat. This means that you're looking at things, you're looking at people, you're talking idly, and it's, um, it's nice, groundless floating. Life with the day is kind of enjoyable. We're immersed in the sea um, of others. We're drowned in the world's suffocating banality. It's tender indifference. Anxiety is the experience of that tide uh, that immerses us, that way in which we're, we're immersed in the sea of the world, that tide going out, that tide goes out. And what I'm thinking of here in particular is the way in which the words for time and tide, time and tide are linked in, say, the Nordic languages, um, in Dutch and, say, the Frisian dialect and also in, in, um, in English at its roots. The experience of time is an experience of tide, where time is linked to the movement of the tide. And if you've spent time in, um, in a rather old-fashioned maritime communities, um, you'll meet people. I've met people like this in the past in uh, places like Jersey and the Channel Islands between England and France who can, um, whose whole day will be shaped by the experience of the tide and they can smell when the tide changes, when the tide's coming in, when the tide's going out. And that's the fundamental marker of time. 
and we're immersed in it, we're immersed in that sea. Okay, so anxiety is the experience of the tide going out, where the water drains away and leaves one stranded on the strand, stranded on the great beach of being. And I like that image that we are kind of, uh, the first way in which the self shows up is that the tide goes out, the water of being in the world drains away and we're revealed as anxious individuals alone. And also linked to this, a point that Heidegger makes is that it's important to understand anxiety in particular ways. We can think about anxiety as worry or jitteriness or fear or, uh, you know, that kind of thing. This is not what Heidegger is trying to get us to think about. For him, anxiety is a kind of calm, a kind of peace. It's a term he uses in what is metaphysics, a kind of a ruhe, a kind of calm or peace. It's important to try and think of anxiety not so much as a worry, but as a kind of detachment, tranquility, a tranquility that's not tranquilized by the world. Perhaps the philosophical mood par excellence anxiety. Anyway, let me put this a slightly different way. If we look at the, um, the first paragraphs of the discussion of anxiety, and I'm here on pages 228, 229, 230. Um, Heidegger compares anxiety with the movement of falling and fleeing. And it's the idea of anxiety as a kind of movement that I want to focus on here. So in state of mind, as I said a couple of episodes back, in state of mind, Dasein, us, Dasein discloses the there of its being in the world in its movement of turning away from itself. And I compared this, I think, to the way in which we can wake up in the middle of the night and shift the position of our body. There's a kind of awareness there and a turning away. And we turn, we alter the position of our body and we return to sleep. So in state of mind, uh, this, there is this movement of evasion where we turn our backs on ourselves because our being is a kind of burden that we don't want to take up. Dasein finds itself fleeing. It finds itself in flight from itself. So that's falling. We know that already. Now in anxiety, Dasein turns away from the turning away of evasion and turns back towards that in the face of which it flees. What's it fleeing from? It's fleeing from itself. It's fleeing from itself. It is this, it is this movement of flight from flight, this movement of flight from flight, this movement from falling away to something which pulls away from that falling away, it is here that the self is first revealed. He describes it even as a solus ipse, a self alone, a kind of solipsism. Namely, anxiety 
individualizes Dasein. Anxiety individualizes us. And it individualizes us in a movement of flight from flight. Have you got that? Flight from flight. We flee to the world. In anxiety, we take flight from that flight. Anxiety is therefore a kind of change of movement, a modification of Dasein's kinesis, its movement. So falling is nothing more than the privation of a disclosedness that becomes deprived and open in the experience of anxiety. That might sound a little bit gnomic. So if falling is nothing more than the privation of a disclosedness, we cover ourselves up in falling, then that disclosedness becomes disclosed, it becomes open in the experience of anxiety. If we are disclosure, as Heidegger insists, if we are ourselves the clearing, then anxiety is the way in which disclosedness is disclosed. Anxiety is the opening of Dasein. Anxiety is the way in which we open to ourselves in a kind of aloneness. What kind of aloneness is that? Well, we can be alone when we're with others. As we know, you know, think of David Reisman's classic study, The Lonely Crowd, the way in which in a city, for example, I just came down here on the subway from um, Greenwich Village down to Tribeca, and everyone is there on the subway. It's they self, right? I'm there with others, and then you can be very alone in those crowds. That's kind of Heidegger's point. So aloneness here does not mean I'm actually physically alone. I can be most alone in my being with others. And my being with others can therefore induce what Sartre used to call a nausea. I sit there on the subway and I'm no longer falling to absorption in the subway. I'm feeling a most profound nausea which is gripping me. I think you all know what that's like. A couple more remarks here on anxiety. It's a fascinating concept. Um, how do we distinguish it from fear? We discussed fear um, a couple of episodes back. So let me look at the distinction between fear and anxiety. Fear is that which threatens Dasein. And that fear can be based in anything big rabbit with big teeth or a big badger that appears at the door threatening me with its badgeriness. And, um, but my fear is related to some entity in the world, is Heidegger's point. Now, the experience of anxiety reveals that that in the face of which one has fear is Dasein itself. Right? That in the face of which one has fear is Dasein itself. I am the rabbit. I am the badger. Kind of. So if in fear Dasein shrinks back from an entity in the world, then in anxiety Dasein shrinks back 
from this shrinking back. You got that? In anxiety Dasein us shrinks back from this shrinking back and becomes, we might say, courageous. Heidegger doesn't use that word, but I think it makes sense in relationship to what Heidegger's thinking about here. And uh, I want to give a, an example here because it might, it might help. There is a, a filmmaker who you might know called Terence Malick. And Terence Malick was a, a philosopher, did philosophy at Harvard and then at Oxford and wanted a career in philosophy as an academic and um, was told by the most powerful person in philosophy in uh, Oxford at that time called Gilbert Ryle that the topic he wants to work on, which was on Heidegger and Wittgenstein or Heidegger, Wittgenstein and Kierkegaard, their understandings of the world, something like that, was uh, not real philosophy. And he became so discouraged that he came back to the United States and um, he taught adjunct for a year um, at MIT, uh, replacing the teaching of uh, Hubert Dreyfus, the great Heidegger interpreter, who at that time was in Paris in a reading group on Heidegger, actually with my, my teacher, Dominique Janico, and a couple of other people, one of which was Jacques Derrida, another of which was Alfonso Lingus. Must have been quite a reading group. Anyway, um, Malik um, is a fully formed young philosopher graduate student without a sense of direction who, um, you know, isn't going to, hasn't got permission to write his PhD and is kind of um, maybe drifting a bit. Anyway, some years later, he finds himself at film school at the American Film Institute in 1968. I think it was the first year the AFI was uh, receiving fellows. And funnily enough, in that year, uh, a fellow student in the intake that year was David Lynch, who would have been uh, a good deal younger. He came from Philadelphia, from the art school there to the um, American Film Institute, then spent many years doing his first movie, Eraserhead. Another story. Good story to tell, but for another time. But Malik, um, a more mature and fully formed intellect, um, goes to film school, makes... Um, his first film, Badlands, second film, Days of Heaven, 73, 78, and then 20 years pass without him making another film. And then he makes a film called The Thin Red Line in 1998. And in this film, uh, he um, tells the story of the Battle of Guadalcanal in the South Pacific during the Second World War. Um, and um, it's a fascinating story. I won't go into the whole detail of it now, but the central character in the movie, not in the book, but in the movie, is somebody called uh, Wit. And Wit, who seems to be a kind of, you know, uh, abbreviation of Wittgenstein in some strange way, Wit in uh, Malik's Thin Red Line um, is uh, played by Jim Caviezel, is... Um, the hero, and this is what happens. Um, he um, he dies, or rather he's, he's killed uh, towards the end of the film, but in a very particular way. 
He is um, he's with his members of his uh, squadron, squad of American soldiers who are being chased through the jungle by Japanese soldiers. And at a certain point, Wit breaks away from the group and diverts the Japanese uh, soldiers uh, down another path. So he saves his buddies, as it were, and sacrifices himself. The Japanese soldiers catch up with him and surround him and begin to scream at him in Japanese. He doesn't understand, but kind of understands that they want him to defend himself because they won't kill him if he doesn't defend himself because that would be dishonorable. So they, um, he gets the message, he kind of half-heartedly raises his gun to shoot and he's shot dead. Now, in the context of the film, this brings us back to an earlier moment. And when you see uh, Wit being killed in this film, he's not uh, in terror, he's not scared. There's a kind of extraordinary calm at the moment of his uh, demise, a calm. And in the film, he, uh, earlier on in the film, he uh, thinks of his mother's death. And he thinks of his mother's death and he has a memory of his mother's death. He's on a beach at the time in a kind of paradise-like situation. And he thinks about his mother dying and thinks about the calm with which she faced death. And he wonders whether he will be able to face death with that same calm. The point of this story is that um, here's an example of heroism. Uh, and the, her the hero is someone who uh, shrinks back from shrinking back into the world and has the courage to face themselves and face their imminent disappearance and um, achieve a kind of calm resoluteness. This is what Heidegger means by anxiety. Anxiety is not fear, it's not a fear of something in the world, it is the um, sense of ourselves. And if we can face that sense of ourselves with a certain peace, a certain calm, then that might be a condition for courage. Anyway, that's kind of what I think. And um, anxiety is anxiety before being in the world as such. So anxiety is anxious, not in the face of some thing in the world, but in the face of the world as a whole. Uh, the world as something indefinite, as a kind of, and Heidegger begins to kind of dramatize the language here in, in these pages. The world as something which is nothing and nowhere. Um, nothing and nowhere. Um, the world becomes meaningless. The world becomes meaningless. So what we've seen so far in Being in Time is this insistence on Dasein as being in the world, and being in the world has the structure of significance. So far, so good, that's all groovy. In anxiety, when I pull back from that world, I suddenly see the world as lacking involvement, lacking significance, the world becomes meaningless. And as such, the worldhood of the world, and remember the world of the world is us, we become obtrusive. So anxiety, and I, I, I still feel this as I'm saying these words to you, it's 
one of the very, very personal moments in being in time. Anxiety is nowhere, yet it's so close that it stifles one's breath and becomes oppressive. As the world slips away, we obtrude. The world pulls away and we kind of show up. So anxiety is a kind of nothing and nowhere. And later on in Heidegger's work in What is Metaphysics from 1929, he'll say, anxiety reveals the nothing. Anxiety reveals the nothing. And my 22-year-old self, my you know first-year undergraduate self after my misspent youth, that, those words, anxiety reveals the nothing, spoke to me uh, profoundly and very personally. And I still think that's the way in which Heidegger needs to be understood. This is not some cognitive, conceptual enterprise. This is the drama of being us, good and bad. Okay, pushing on a tiny bit and pulling this episode to a close. Anxiety is not definite, it's not linked to some particular threat, as in fear with its, the threat of a big rabbit or a big badger. In anxiety, Darzan is thrown back on itself, thrown back onto its potentiality for being. And this is how anxiety individualizes Darzan and individualizes Darzan as a being who is defined by possibility, by, by freedom, by a sense in which things can be seized hold of. But this comes at a cost. Individualized Dasein, anxious Dasein, is not at home. It feels uncanny, unheimlich, no longer at home in the world. We flee in the face of uncanniness when we fall, when we're, you know, back in the party, as it were. But in angst, in anxiety, we flee towards that uncanniness. We seek it out. And Heidegger says that anxiety is not something that requires darkness and insomnia. It doesn't require these um, more dramatic moods. It's something which can arise in the most innocuous of situations. He says on page 234, anxiety can arise in the most innocuous situation, nor does it have any need for darkness in which it is commonly easier for one to feel uncanny. So we can feel nausea, we can feel anxiety, we can feel uh, this angst um, on the subway, wherever we like. Darkness might help. And we think about that in relationship to maybe a childhood experience you know, when you're in bed at night, it's dark and um, you can't sleep. And there's a kind of hubbub of noise downstairs, your parents or family talking, uh, maybe the television's on or something like that. And you, you kind of want to be there and you can't be there because uh, you've got to sleep. And um, the daytime world, uh, the world of familiarity kind of flips around and, um, uh, your room is surrounded by, is immersed in darkness and the toys and objects and things in that 
in your room become kind of animated, become kind of scary, and the whole context can induce a kind of anxiety in you. So darkness can help. Anyway, I digress. So the point that Heidegger is making here is a point about anxiety, and it's powerful and personal. He also insists that anxiety is rare. It doesn't happen all the time. It's rare, it's seldom. It's not physiologically conditioned. Obviously, physiology can play a part. Um, it is, but it is ontological. It is the structure of our being. And it has to be faced and uh, affirmed courageously and not kind of diagnosed and medicated out of existence. Anxiety isn't a disorder, right? Anxiety isn't a disorder. Anxiety is what human beings do. It becomes a question of how we interpret anxiety and use anxiety, use its energy and transform that into a kind of courage. I think this is desperately important. Now, at the end of the discussion of anxiety, uh, as Heidegger sometimes does in Being in Time, he kind of steps back and says, well, where has anxiety been talked about in the, uh, the tradition? And um, there's a long footnote, not a long footnote, there's a footnote on page 492. Footnote four, footnote four, page 492, where it talks about the Christian legacy of thinking about anxiety. He mentions um, uh, a few authors. He mentions uh, St. Augustine, where anxiety plays a key role in Book Eight of the Confessions. He mentions Luther, and he was reading a lot of Luther in the years prior to being in time. And he mentions the thinker from whom he kind of borrowed the concept of anxiety and who he relegates to a couple of um, innocuous footnotes, Soren Kierkegaard. And Kierkegaard in many ways is a, a key player in this book, but Heidegger plays down his, uh, his influence in, in a way that I think is desperately unfair. I mean, Kierkegaard, what would Kierkegaard have thought about being in time? Well, he was already dead, so we couldn't ask him, but he would have found it kind of preposterous, you know, as preposterous as, you know, the usual German philosopher attempts to synthesize the absolute in abstract conceptual terms. Uh, Kierkegaard chose different tactics. He chose to write indirectly, he chose to write in the, the form of pseudonyms in a whole number of different uh, voices because he didn't believe, didn't believe that a direct philosophical discourse, discourse on that which is was possible. Um, anyway, so the analysis of anxiety really has its home not so much in philosophy, more in uh, religious traditions and the religious tradition to which Heidegger was closest was Christianity. Just to add one tiny thing to that, another thinker that we could link to this discussion of anxiety would be St. Paul, you know, the real founder of Christianity. Uh, you know, the evangelists, the, the four gospels are after Paul's letters. Paul's letters are the first documents of Christianity. And Paul doesn't describe himself as Christian, the term didn't exist in his time, but he describes people who are in Christ, in Christ. and. He says in, uh, I think in Romans, he talks about what should the, um, what should the person who has 
experienced the call of, uh, of Christ, has experienced the demand of uh, the risen Christ, and who has converted, uh, what should they do? What should their stance be? And he says, remain in the condition in which you were called. Remain in the condition in which you were called. And the point is to, if you are in Christ for Paul, you should await, await um, in the condition of anxiety. Right? There's an anxious waiting. The anxious waiting for Paul was very real. Christ uh, had been born, had been nailed to a tree in Palestine and then resurrected, but he was coming back and coming back soon. Uh, what should one do in the meantime? One should wait anxiously. Sadly, he's not turned up yet, but some people are still waiting. That's kind of it for this episode. There's a lot more weird stuff in these pages, which I won't go into, but people like a happy ending, so let me give you a happy ending. There's a happy ending in paragraph 42. So having laid out this argument about care, the structure of care, and uh, anxiety is what uh, discloses care. In paragraph 42, um, he does something which has always mystified me. He calls it a confirmation of the existential interpretation of Dasein, a confirmation which is done by way of what he calls a pre-ontological way of Dasein's interpreting itself. What on earth does that mean? Well, what it means in this couple of pages in paragraph 42 is that Heidegger is going to tell us a story. And he tells us a story about care. So the definition of the being of Dasein as care, just to remind you, that means ahead of itself, being already in the world alongside inner-worldly things. Dasein is ahead of itself, existential, already in the world, factical, alongside inner-worldly things, falling, is an attempt to redefine the human being. And Heidegger thinks this has been demonstrated um, in a myth of care, the fable of cura, as he calls it. And he tells the following story. I'm going to read this from page 242. He says, it's kind of once upon a time moment in being in time. There aren't many of them, so enjoy it. This is Heidegger quoting um, uh, somebody called Burdach and uh, the myth of Cairn. Once when Cairn was crossing a river, she saw some clay. She thoughtfully took up a piece and began to shape it. While she was meditating on what she had made, Jupiter came by. Cairn asked him to give it spirit, and this he gladly granted. But when she wanted, to, wanted her name to be bestowed upon it, he forbade this and demanded that it be given his name instead. While Care and Jupiter were disputing, Earth arose and desired that her own name be conferred on the creature, since she had furnished it with part of her body. They asked Saturn to be their arbiter, and he made the following decision, which seemed a just one. 
quoting Saturn, since you, Jupiter, are given its spirit, you shall receive that spirit at its death. And since you, Earth, have given it body, you shall receive its body. But since care first shaped this creature, she shall possess it as long as it lives. And because there is now a dispute among you as to its name, let it be called Homo, for it is made out of hummus, earth, or hummus that you can buy in the delicatessen. It's a weird moment, this. The myth here is that the human being has the stamp of care. The human being is shaped by care out of clay or mud. And this is why we're called homo, because esse factus ex humo. We are made out of humus, the earth. Our breath was given to us by Jupiter, or Jove, which means top god. God gives the human being spirit, breath, pneuma. So we're made of earth and spirit, but we belong to care. And this was decided by, decided by Saturn. And Saturn, in mythological terms, means time. Saturn means time. Temporality is the meaning of care. Our careful sojourn in the world is dominated by time. And that's kind of what Heidegger means by this little story. So here's your happy ending. So the, uh, the being of Dasein is care. It's revealed, disclosed by anxiety, and then confirmed with this weird little mythic story. And uh, a final thing I want to say just in closing is there is another footnote. There's always another footnote. This is footnote seven from uh, chapter six. And this footnote, uh, I won't read it to you. I'll just uh, describe it. He talks in this footnote about trying to link together, he says, Augustinian Christian anthropology and the ontology of Aristotle. He says care um, can be thought of in these terms. And this reveals something which I think is uh, important for understanding being in time. That being in time is trying to do at least two things and two things which are contradictory. On the one hand, the book was written as a book on Aristotle. That's how it was described. This was Heidegger's book for, for tenure as a professor in, in Marburg. Um, and it was a book on Aristotle. And that's where we get all the being in the world stuff, um, the way in which the world hangs together, significance, all of that good stuff. But to try and uh, marry that, bring that together with a Christian anthropology. And the Christian anthropology here is really the tradition of people like Paul, Augustine, Luther, and Kierkegaard. And this is, what, uh, this is why anxiety becomes important. So on the one hand, we have this kind of account of being in the world, which seems cool, a kind of, um, if you want, if it makes you feel better, you can call it a pragmatic realism. And this is what has shaped much of the um, American interpretation of, of Heidegger over the years. It's not wrong. 
Um, but there's also this, um, this Christian dimension, which is uh, mobilized around the concept of anxiety. And why that's important is that the world, as it shows up in, say, Christian anthropology, the world is nothing. The world is sinful. The world is that which we have to move away from in the experience of faith in order to turn ourselves towards God. So in a way, within the Christian worldview, the world has to become nothing or nothing um, that it has ultimate significance. Why has ultimate significance lies outside the world? Heidegger's being in time, in many ways, is bringing those two streams of thought together, ontology of Aristotle, Christian anthropology, bringing those two things together and letting them kind of uh, resound against each other in a kind of awkward counterpoint while being neither of them, right? The Heidegger, in a way, fuses together the Greeks and the Christians in a way that is neither Greek nor Christian, but um, resolutely atheist. And um, that's where I want to finish it. And next time we're going to pick up on these two big philosophical questions, the questions of reality and truth. But that's for next time. Thank you very much for listening.